0: Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery.
1: Good afternoon. It is Friday, October 23rd, and you have tuned in to Noon Edition with co-host Ariana Prothero. I'm Stan Jostrebski, and this week we're talking about changing trends in education. Joining us in the studio are Gerardo Gonzalez, Dean of Indiana University's School of Education, history professor and co-director of IU's Freshman Learning Project, David Pace, and Mary Huber, a senior researcher at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Education. Thanks to all of you for being here.
0: Nice to be with you. Thank
1: you. You can join our conversation today by calling 812 855 or 877-285-9348. Or you can leave a comment on our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition, if you have a question for our panelists. And before we begin, uh, be- before we begin, I do want to point out that we did attempt to get state school superintendent Tony Bennett or a member of his staff on today's program. But most of them were in Washington, D.C and we're therefore unavailable to be on the panel. But we are very happy to have the three of you here. And let me ask a a real general question to begin. Uh, We're nearing the end of the first year of Tony Bennett's time in office. Uh, we're, We're 10 months in now. So let me paraphrase Ronald Reagan and ask you, are we better off now than we were 10 months ago? And I'll start with you, Dean Gonzalez. What do you think?
0: Well, if the proposed rules for the way that educators are licensed and prepared in the states are any indication, we are not better off. Uh, I think that um, the Department of Education, under Dr. Bennett's leadership, has put forward a set of recommendations that will take us back decades uh, in the way we think about the preparation of teachers as being driven by standards and measured by the performance of the teachers in the classroom as well as as their students. Uh, They are moving towards what we used to call course count counting how many courses of one area or another area uh, teachers are required to take. And, and I think that, uh, that would not be good for, for education. Uh, I understand the, the general interest in making changes, and I think that's a good thing. They're trying to reduce barriers for teachers to be able to go into teaching, and we strongly support that. We think there ought to be alternative routes to preparation, from the traditional education programs. We have a very vibrant and uh, well-subscribed transition to teaching program here at Indiana University. Uh, online programs, I think that if they're done well and if they are nationally accredited, can certainly help prepare uh, teachers, although of, although they would have to spend time in, in the classroom. So some of those ideas are are good. I think that help move the field forward but uh, the, the negative that I have seen in the proposals at, at the moment outweigh the, the positive and I think will have a very serious and long-term negative impact on teacher preparation and leadership preparation, uh, school leaders uh, in the state.
1: Well, we'll get into a number of those topics uh, in more depth as we move along. Other thoughts on, on where we stand uh, looking back on the last uh, 10 months or so and, and where, where things seem to be going here in the state? David, any thoughts from you?
2: Well, my focus is on higher education rather than on the school system. I just want to echo one thing you've said that that in our work um in the disciplines in higher education uh we have three areas and they're all important and one is is general pedagogical methods et cetera, and one is grounding in the disciplines, and then the third is the pedagogy of the disciplines, that each discipline has its own problems and issues, et cetera. And we've been focusing a lot on that. And Any program that only focuses on one is going to be deficient. So the teachers have to know that. They have to know the subject. They have to know how to teach and they have to know how to teach that subject.
1: Well, that leads me to my second point. The, the new administration has drawn criticism, as Dean Gonzalez points out, for a proposal which would allow professionals who have careers in other subjects to enter the teaching ranks more easily without having to have taken many or in some cases, any pedagogy classes, which leads to concern about how those teachers handle students and handle the teaching and handle those three points that you just brought up. So the argument has been just because you have a biology degree doesn't mean you know how to teach biology. We've sort of addressed that concern. I kind of want to turn the question on its head and ask, is it also a fair question to ask just because you have a teaching degree doesn't mean you know enough biology to know how to teach it?
0: Oh, I I think that's absolutely correct. I I think, uh, as David has said, uh, uh, teachers, whether at the K-12 level or in higher education, uh, have to have a strong base in the content that they're going to teach. They need to have the pedagogical knowledge to teach that content uh, to appropriate audiences at various grade levels and the specifics of the field that they're teaching. Now, the irony about these proposals, which, which are called the um, Rules for Education Preparation and Accountability, a fancy name, people generally refer to it as REPA, R-E-P-A. The, the interesting thing about the, these set of proposals is that the superintendent and other advocates have been saying that these proposals and these changes are needed in order to increase the content knowledge that teachers must, must have. But the reality is that if these proposals were adopted as now uh, under consideration, they would actually reduce, not increase, they would reduce the number of content courses like mathematics or biology that teachers are now required to take. Take mathematics, for example. The proposal is that secondary teachers, those who teach middle school and high school, would have to major in the discipline, not in education. Right now we have the option in Indiana for teachers... Of middle schools and high school students to major either in the discipline, like mathematics, or they can major it in education, in which case they would, ma- would, they would major in secondary education. What the proposal does is you have to major in the discipline. Well, if a teacher chooses to major in secondary education mathematics now, they would be required to take 42 credit hours in mathematics, not school of education, mathematics courses. If they were to pursued a bachelor's of arts degree in mathematics, the requirements is 30 hours of mathematics. And when you take both programs and you superimpose one on the other, what you see is that we in the School of Education are requiring the same mathematics courses taught by the same mathematics faculty, but more of them. And so, it, and so there's a misperception that's out there that this proposal is needed because teachers don't get enough content. That is not true in Indiana University. In fact, it's not true in the state.
3: Now, I actually have a question regarding that. You said that uh, when you're getting a degree in education, you would actually take more math classes. Are they as difficult? Because it's my understanding that at least if you're in a math degree, you're maybe not taking pre-algebra or sort of these more basic courses. Does that make
0: sense? Yes. Uh, Adriana, it's not that way at all. These are the exact same courses taught by the same faculty in the arts and sciences and the mathematics department than uh, – the students would be taken if they were majoring in mathematics. That's the content part of our curriculum. We also have the educational part where uh, students learn the pedagogy of that field. They learn how to teach to diverse students and they learn that part of it. But that is separate from the content area. They are taking the exact same courses. In the case of mathematics, they go through calculus. They go through statistics. They go through the same courses that a mathematics major in the discipline will be required to But are
3: they the same level? Because I know that I actually I have a couple of friends that are doctoral students in the math department here, and they teach education majors. Now, I know there's also people who are in the mathematics department who are undergraduates, and they don't take from doctoral students. They take from full professors. There's no. You're saying that there is absolutely no difference between the classes that the education majors take
0: that's right. and
3: for, the mathematics students. That, that's
0: exactly correct for secondary teachers for for. Um, of uh, those who are going to be mathematics teachers, now we also have, of course a program for elementary teachers. Now, teach elementary teachers teach mathematics, they teach reading, they teach social studies, they teach science, and those courses are designed for for students who are going to be elementary teachers so so that 's different, and that may be the courses that your friends uh, in the mathematics department are are teaching. The courses that i 'm talking about, those that I require. For a secondary major, which is what the rules now propose to do away with. They're saying we don't want uh, people to have the option to major in secondary education, whether it be mathematics or science or social studies. We want them to major in a discipline. But if that happens, they will be required to take less of the content area courses, which are the exact same courses that mathematics or history majors or or biology majors are taking – Than if they were uh, permitted to have the option to measure in secondary education. But they would not get the pedagogy. They wouldn't have the field experiences. They would not have the same uh, type of student teaching experiences, the uh, integration of technology into the K 12 curriculum, those parts which uh, are the components of the uh, education major.
1: Mary, give me a view of this from a a national perspective in terms of this, this debate.
4: My area has been focused on higher education, teaching in higher education. Um, And I think um, the issue in higher education is somewhat um, the reverse of the issue in K-12. In higher education, it has long been the case, as you were saying before, that people who have a doctoral degree in a subject area – have gone directly into teaching. There has been no – historically, very uh, few expectations about any particular training or even being conversant with ideas in pedagogy. That's shifting in higher ed. So we are moving not to uh, less content knowledge in higher ed, but we are adding – more programs for students while they're in graduate school, while they're getting their doctoral degrees, to have uh, some exposure to ideas about teaching, the growing literature on teaching. Um, in, at Indiana University, at universities around the country, there are more programs of what uh, is sometimes called professional development, which give teachers uh, in higher education a central place where they can go to find colleagues who are interested in discussing these kinds of things um, on the k twelve level um, i th- I think that the national conversation has been um, one of the areas which has been um, most parallel with what you 're discussing here has been on in fact the virtues or not of Uh, the Teach for America program. Uh, That has been a lightning rod for a discussion of what kinds of training and what kinds of development, professional development opportunities are important for teachers in the schools.
0: Um, uh, Interestingly, um, Wendy Krupp, who is the executive uh, director and founder of Teach for America, was recently quoted in a national uh, uh, story uh, as saying that they uh, that she, uh, Teach for America, had initially underestimated the level of uh, uh, preparation, educational, pedagogical preparation that their um, Teach for America teachers uh, uh, really needed to be able to succeed in those high-need courses. And, and so they are now uh, looking to partner with uh, some universities so that those Teach for America fellows get credential. They're developing their own professional development programs and um and, and i think everyone is is beginning to to realize that you know uh, we we just can't have one or the other that all of those are necessary i mean if we think about it, the the scholarship of teaching and learning that you represent uh we get the world's best uh, most uh, prepared scientists or 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 historians or whatever they may be in their discipline. But then when they get here to to the university, we spend millions of dollars getting them ready to teach in the classroom, to impart that content to kids who are not all at the same level. And uh, if if content knowledge was all that was needed, then they would just stand up in the class and be an excellent teacher. And and I think that's something we're learning across the board. I think, too,
2: there's an issue here... Uh, that's crucial, which is this long-standing separation of higher education and primary and secondary education, which I think is, is completely non and there's been so little connection. And I think we're seeing a growing together here, as we're seeing that that um, in higher education we need some training in how to teach. We just got to do it, and we need to explore it. We need to investigate on our own and investigate in conjunction with people in education schools. At the same time, that their questions asked about the content knowledge and how's that. Connected, I think we're seeing more and more links between the two works.
1: You were saying off the air that you had had some, you had had some challenges yourself when you began teaching just oh, after yes. – as, as you were working on still writing your dissertation, you had taken your first teaching job and you were saying you would faced a number of challenges you didn't expect.
2: Well, when I, st- I started in 71, without any teaching experience whatsoever, I think I had walked into classrooms twice uh, and now I had a you know, full load of teaching plus a dissertation to write. At that point, there was no sense that there was anything you could do to improve your teaching. You just learned your subject matter and then you either had char- charisma or you didn't and that was all there was to it. And If you weren't a good teacher, well, too bad. That's how it was. There's nothing to do. That changed in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, they began to change and now uh, junior faculty have expectations that they're going to improve in teaching just like they're going to improve in their research areas and that there's something to learn and they don't have to invent it all by themselves. Uh, and so that gives us uh, a link to education schools and what, what's happening in them that's, that wasn't there before.
4: I think one of the interesting questions that um, the, the change that David's talking about raises concerns why there has been this move in higher education towards a greater appreciation of the need for pedagogy, uh, for pedagogical knowledge. And uh, I think we could have some fun speculating on what has happened in those thirty forty years um at a very um immediate level. I think we can note that there was a period where there was quite a um, uh, serious public concern about the quality of teaching in higher education um There was a concern that faculty members especially at the major research universities were focusing um, much too uh, intently and much too exclusively on the research expectations that they had and uh, that many of the teaching responsibilities were being delegated to graduate students. So one of the things that happened – um, was a move on the part of universities to uh, first uh, start preparing those graduate students who were going to be in the class with especially the introductory students. And um, as those graduate students completed their degrees and entered the ranks of faculty, they came with some expectation of further development and uh, some ex- also sense of what the of excitement about what the possibilities were in teaching and learning in their fields um, that was one of the routes that uh, higher education has taken to a greater sensitivity to these issues.
1: Well, my next question was going to be about expectations, and I'm, I, I have sort of a, a two part question The first is. Do we expect enough? And, and the answer, I suspect, may be different for secondary education and higher education. Do we expect enough of our students today? And you know, of course, the, the the other part of this is teacher quality has always varied from teacher to teacher, and likely will always vary, no matter what classes we have people take. But isn't it enough that whatever these skills are of the people who are teaching should students not just be expected to behave, to listen, to learn? I mean, is this an unreasonable base expectation that in some ways we've gotten away from over time in in, in favor of these, forgive the term, but newfangled methods to try to reach everybody from every teacher?
0: Well, I absolutely think that uh, we need to have high expectations uh, for all students. But remember that our population of students, both in the k twelve schools and in higher education is is becoming increasingly diverse. Um, we have more kids today in our schools who have English as a second language, for example than um, than we had you know uh, just a few years ago i mean there's so many more. Um, you cannot expect a child who does not speak English to behave in the same way. In an American classroom, that may be foreign, not just in terms of language but in terms of culture, um, as someone who understands the language and has been brought up speaking English at home. And so one of the things that we have to do and it's one of the things I think is important for, for teachers, whether it be at the at the K-12 level or higher education, we need to learn to differentiate instruction so that uh, when when we are trying to teach a child, we can design instruction and the activities in such a way that that child can learn it at the level they're in and then build on that. At the same time, we absolutely have got to have high expectations for all students. I think one of the tragedies of this uh, country's educational system is is that in far too many places, we sort of assume that a large number of students are not going to make it and we begin to see a self-fulfilling prophecy.
3: Yeah, and it should be i mean noted that I guess that this would be very different from primary education to higher education because in a public school, you have to take everyone. You have to take whatever student comes to you, whereas in higher education, there's an admission process. So how does this question... Well,
2: there is a problem with the assumption behind that, which is uh, on the one hand, we argue that In the future, we're going to have to have college education for the vast majority of people because that's where the jobs are. That's where the life is more complicated. Our political system is complicated. We've got to educate people. And if we just accept as a given that a lot of people aren't college material, if that number is large, then the country has a major, major problem.
4: Let me um, add – a little um, history here, especially in regard to the education of people in the sciences and mathematics, the commonly referred to as the STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Um, some years ago, um, it was recognized at the national level that it was not okay to have so many students, especially women and minorities— dropping out of science majors in, in higher education. Quite a number of people would come in to college with aspirations for a profession that involved a science or mathematics education. Uh, they wanted to be engineers or doctors or nurses or scientists as well. And um, But many people were dropping out and the National Science Foundation, as part of a national science policy to increase the representation of women and minorities in the science professions, um, Looked began to look to not just the pipeline of what was going on in K-12, but the way in which sci- these courses were taught in higher education. There was a sense that the curriculum and the pedagogy were actually contributing to people dropping out of the sciences. The – National priorities um, developed from that point. Uh, We've never dropped our goal of um, equity in science professions, but we have added to it a conviction that we need a more scientifically literate population. That means that students who are not science majors also um, need to have a better science education in higher ed. I'm sure that's true in K-12 as well. Absolutely. you have changes, not just in the population, but in our sense of what the nation needs of that population, contributing to this very interesting moment where uh, higher education uh, uh, in the sciences and across the fields is paying attention.
2: And there's, there are models now for how this can be done. And it's, if we don't pay attention to them, then we really fail in our responsibility as educators. Just to pick one example from our state, uh, Dennis Jacobs, who was in the Carnegie program that, that Mary helped run. Um, he's a chemist at Notre Dame. And he was very disturbed by the number of students who got DF or withdrawals from the introductory chemistry course because that is the gateway to all kinds of professions. People that have been very good at many kinds of things in life and that we needed couldn't do that because they couldn't get through the introductory chemistry course. And that's at a school that has a pretty high standard of admissions. Even there, they were running large numbers, 20 to 30 percent of the students just couldn't get through that course. And so he set up a special section. Uh, for students that, that had low grades or, or low uh, scores on their – on the SATs in chemistry, added one extra hour, added a lot more cooperative – collaborative learning, a lot more active learning, moving away from the old lectures, stage on the stage kind of model. But he gave them the same material and they had exactly the same final as the other students. At the end of the first year of the program, the scores were identical. So there are things that we can do.
4: We just Uh, have to do them. Let me just add. uh, I just saw Dennis Jacobs who's at the very conference here that's taking place at Indiana University this week, uh, the International Society for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. Uh, Dennis Jacobs is here and I asked for an update, which I do every year when I see him. Um, Dennis Jacobs uh, says that now all of the chemistry classes, not just the ones for at-risk Students, But all of them have shifted to this new um, pedagogy where students are more engaged, have more opportunity to talk about and to, to learn to speak the language of chemistry to each other and wrestle together in teams uh, with difficult concept questions. At any rate, that has happened. That has spread throughout the chemistry department there, and some of the other sciences at Notre Dame have also taken this on. And I would just add that Dennis is not alone, nor is Notre Dame alone. Um, there are uh, very interesting experiments in how you teach these large introductory science and math classes around the country. Mm-hmm how you teach them in ways that uh, keep, keep, keep students engaged and keep them enrolled in those courses. Well, we, yes, have,
1: we have reached the bottom of the hour. We do need to take a, a, a quick break, but uh, we encourage you to call while we're off on break. 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348 are the phone numbers at which you can reach us. We'll be back in just a minute.
3: You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from closets, Two, Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini-quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, wfiu.org. And the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45.
1: We are back on Noon Edition. Joining us in studio today are Gerardo Gonzalez, Dean of Indiana University's School of Education, IU history professor and co-director of the Freshman Learning Project, David Pace, and Mary Huber, who is a researcher at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Education. You can reach us at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or leave a comment at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition.
3: And just before we went to break, Mary was talking about um, new te- teaching techniques being used at um, Notre Dame to involve students more in maybe a more community sort of way, a more kinetic kind of way. And um, I wanted to ask, are you seeing that more in the public schools? Is that something that you're sort of trying to advance in teacher education?
0: Uh, yes, Ariana. In, uh, in, in K-12, we, we talk about it in terms of problem-based learning. Uh, particularly, problem-based learning in the STEM discipline—science, technology, engineering, and mathematics—and in fact, there's a new type of school that is uh, evolving around Indiana called New Tech a School. We have one right here in Bloomington that focuses on problem-based learning and everything—not just the, the, the STEM disciplines, but all learning is is based on solving problems getting the information they need, knowing how to access information to, to deal with real world uh, problems. You know, President Obama has set a goal of having uh, the United States with the largest proportion of the population uh, that has college degrees by the year 2020 than any other country in the world. That is a major, major uh, challenge. Uh, there are far too many kids here who are not making it through high school. There are far too many kids who are getting to college and not graduating uh, from college. And that means that we have to think of the educational system, not as a, as a, a segmented system of elementary, middle schools, high school, higher education, but we need to think of it as a systemic, seamless system of education from preschool through college and beyond, even to the workforce. Because... To be successful at one level, you need strong foundations at the earlier level. You need early childhood experiences before you even get into, into the first grade or kindergarten to be school ready. And if there's one thing that we know from the research, that those experiences do a great deal by way of brain development and, and developing the skills that kids are going to need to then learn reading when they'll be in the first grade and second grade and third grade, which then they need to solve problems and so on and so forth. That's why I'm so concerned about these proposals that the Department of Education has introduced is that they take us back to a day when we thought that these kinds of experiences were not interrelated and that we couldn't teach uh, how to learn uh, or we couldn't teach people uh, what they needed to do to help others succeed at, at various levels. In this country, the uh, the graduation rate for college students on average is about 35 percent. Thirty-five percent of college students across the country actually graduate after they start in college. In uh, The high school graduation rate in Indiana is about 75 percent, which is just a little bit above the national average. And people call it a crisis. Now, think about – the number of students that we have to now graduate after they get to college, once they make it through high school, to achieve the goals that the president has set. If we don't help our faculty learn the pedagogy and help deal with this increasingly diverse of uh, groups of students, uh, we will never achieve those goals. And one of the things from a policy making perspective that we have to do is we have to start th- thinking systemically about education. Uh, Dave and I were just talking here during the break that if we do a good job preparing students for college and high school, then they'll do better when they get here. But if they're not exposed to the best practices in teaching when they're here and they're learning to be teachers, they're not going to be able to use those best practices when they go back to the, as teachers to the school. So so we got to change the, the way we think and this REPA proposal breaks that by saying, creating a dichotomy between content and pedagogy, field experiences, elementary, secondary, and so on.
2: I think that um, we have to admit that in higher education, we've we've not been responsible. We have for a long time said if there's a problem with student learning, it's because the high schools don't do their job and that we don't really have a job. We're supposed to have students that are pre-educated, prepared to exceed all of our expectations and no responsibility to do anything about that. I think that's ending. I think people are feeling like we have to learn how to teach these students better because we're all involved, as you say, in the same kind of operation and all of us have to do it. And uh, it's, on the other hand, it's a very exciting time because people are, in fact, accepting that responsibility on a scale that I never could have imagined earlier in my career. There are 650 people here from, what, over a dozen countries that have come to IU for the, for the six annual meetings of the Society of People by and large, not in education schools, in in chemistry departments and history departments, et cetera, who are coming together to learn best practices, to do studies in their own fields, to find out how to teach. And that's something which is unprecedented in higher education. And it's opening up links to what's happening in the primary and the secondary schools that are unprecedented.
3: that, that, um, That begs the question, what higher education seems to be moving towards is more what Tony Bennett is proposing, which is... You have your training in the degree or in the discipline you're going to be teaching, and then you have these other things that sort of augment your knowledge that can teach you how, how to teach in the classroom. Um, I'm curious as to why – I guess I'm not quite understanding why um, Bennett's proposals are going to take us back because it seems to me – and maybe I'm not understanding the nuances. It seems to me that he's proposing what we're trying to do in our, in our colleges and our universities.
0: Well, no, not, not at all. I think I've heard uh, David and Mary to some extent also say that what we look what we need to do is integrate it too. That you get to have the knowledge of the field, but you also need to teach it effectively to different populations of students and to teach the specifics of that particular field, whether it be problem-based uh, uh, learning, uh, doing experiments in chemistry or whatever. And if we don't... Uh, begin while we're preparing teachers to be teachers to learn how to bring integration to those and learn both, the content. I mean, you don't have to do one and then the other. I think it's best, in fact, when they are learned simultaneously because teachers are learning mathematics in mathematics classes or chemistry in chemistry classroom. But then they have to translate that into – Teaching it to younger kids at grade level, and so we have created here at IU for example a series of what we call linking courses where a person may be in history and at the same time they in a history methods course where they're turning learning how to take that content and teaching there is no research that tells us that someone has to learn the content first and then learn how to teach it in fact that's counterintuitive and and that's another issue that I think both David and Mary touched on a little bit, is that we really haven't uh, developed um, teaching uh, and learning um, as a science-based discipline. We assume that uh, teaching is easy. We've all been exposed to teaching in one way or another. And we think that um, because we learned it, everybody else will learn it the way we did. And so we haven't really invested a lot of money in this country. In doing the research that's necessary to learn how people learn or how to best teach them, we spend you know twenty nine billion dollars in life sciences research and agriculture engineering research in this country. Twenty nine billion dollars. We spend four hundred million dollars, the federal government, in educational research, and yet everything that we do, every profession, depends on educational success. And the single greatest expenditures of every state is in education. So we have to invest in the research. We cannot assume that notions of the past about having to have content and then learn how to teach it or you know, how kids learn uh, are going to hold up under research scrutiny.
1: I want to look at this from a different angle, uh, a general question uh, that I think also may have a, a different answer for higher education versus uh, K-12, through and that is what is – the the opinion of the three of you on how connected parents are to education today. Do do we believe that parents are connected enough? Have they become more or less connected as time has worn on? Um, Thoughts? Mary, we'll start with you. How about?
4: Well, in higher education, um, the situation is, of course, a little different. Um, There certainly are a growing number of students who are living at home, there are a growing number of students um, who depend uh, for support from their parents uh, financially and emotionally and in terms of the general culture of the home and the respect for education We have heard in higher education, and, and i 'm sure that uh, david will will uh, be able to tell us about his experience at Indiana. About a growing number of parents who are who are, in essence following their children into the classroom and into the dorms, um, partly aided by the technologies that we have today of cell phones and um, email and all of that. So that, that in some cases, there's a closer connection between college students and their parents uh, than there was before. That can sometimes be damaging. I think on the whole though um, – The story is the same as it has always been, that students depend on support from their family in a great many ways to be successful students. Those who do not have it have an extra burden um, that many teachers are familiar with and um, are developing ways of stepping in to help.
2: There's a complicated relationship. Uh, We have certainly found it in history sometimes. Some of the things that you learn in college change you, and that's how it's supposed to be. Sometimes those changes distance students from their families. Sometimes people find it harder to go back and sit around the dinner table and talk the way they talked before because they've been exposed to a broader world, new ways of thinking, all sorts of things. And so there is an issue of the disjunction between the family and, uh, and the student that. I think that's a big indirect influence, certainly an area like uh, uh, biology where evolution is an absolutely essential element uh, in doing biology. There's just not any biology that exists without evolution as a concept now. And The student that comes home using – having used evolution as a model and taking it for granted is – may in some cases find families for whom that's that's a very, very loaded issue and, and it's the other, the them that do these things. Um, in history, there are things that we learn about the past that, that aren't always nice. Uh, and we've, we've been doing a lot of work with that. We have a project that we're doing in history about how students learn. And that's one of the things we didn't expect to be as strong. And that some topics, the students feel as if they're betraying their families if they, if they do them. And so we have to think about ways to frame it so they don't have that experience. But nonetheless, uh, the relationship with the family is in the background. But sometimes I think creating invisible problems for for students and for instructors.
0: Yeah, I mean for for K twelve students, obviously the involvement of parents and family, both family support, role modeling, su- help with uh, homework, and getting them to school activities, and all all those kinds of things are are very important. Um, but I think parents recognize now that you know education is is so critical to the future of their children sometimes the parents themselves have a hard time letting go. And and in our culture, you would expect kids as they get older to become more independent. And as Dean, I can tell you, I get a lot of calls from parents. We call them helicopter parents because they're always buzzing (laughs) over their children who are now, though sometimes even graduate students. And their parents are calling because they don't think that one thing or another is not right. And I think part of the developmental process is to help children become independent. But they certainly need Parental support, especially in the younger age uh, groups, uh, to be able to to master the uh, the very uh, challenging and complex uh, um, uh, system that is the educational system, and and to learn and and be able to to develop as human beings.
4: I'd like to just add to that that parents um, are a very important and increasingly more vocal part of the public that. Um, are involved in the shaping of public policy. They are the people to whom policymakers uh, address their arguments. Um, they want uh, – there, there's been a great press in – certainly for higher education in having what people refer to as a more transparent um, uh, account of what their students are going to get and have been getting in college, what the learning outcomes of college are. This has played into the national political discussion, especially in the last uh, presidential administration with the report of the Secretary of Education, Margaret Spellings, but um, it has led to an increasing sense of accountability on the part of higher education and one that is specifically focused on the teaching and learning process in the school.
2: I think that's very relevant to our situation as a state uh, institution here. I think we've failed in some ways so far to to let the community know what's happening on our campus. Uh, IU is known nationally and internationally as a place where, where professors are taking across the whole curriculum are taking teaching very, very seriously, doing their own research on it. I've uh, twice been at natural, national uh, conferences Sitting around tables with people, and everyone talks about what's happened at their school, and I say, "Well, we've done this at in Indiana," and they'll say, "Oh, well, well, that's Indiana. We couldn't do that." Uh, and yet, I think the people in Indiana tend to think of, of IU, particularly IU Bloomington, as being filled with professors who just don't care about students; only care about their research. Uh, and the first year of the, of the scholarship of teaching and learning program on campus, one-third of tenure faculty came to one of the meetings or took part in the in the process and one-third of the faculty don't do anything on this campus in common. That image remains though and I think we need to work very hard to, to dispel it and make people in the community know that we're working for their kids and that their tuition dollars are, are – paying for something here that they couldn't get in many other
0: campuses. And, and, and you know, to underscore that point, that just how important this really is, uh, Indiana University is one of those institutions that is what we refer to as an overachiever. What that means is if you look at the profile of our students, you can predict how many will graduate. And in fact, we are exceeding the graduation rate that the profile of our students would uh, would, ex- would would tell us uh, would be would be expected, and I think I I think that the, one of the big reasons for that is the fact that Indiana University the faculty takes teaching so seriously, and this is why I think that uh, uh, you know going back to your to your question Ariana, the, the notion that you know someone has to learn one thing first and then learn the other, the reason why spending so much money and working so hard now to make a our faculty appreciate teaching and prepare themselves because they didn't get that in the college preparation. And in fact, Mary was saying earlier, we're now moving to where our graduate students were going to be the faculty of the universities tomorrow are now expected to teach and I expected to reflect on their teaching and to attend workshops like the scholarship of teaching and learning because by the time they get to the discipline, and they get higher, um, it may be too late and many institutions are not able to do it. And that's why I think that in in K-12, we need both. We need strong content knowledge, which we do now do, and strong pedagogy and the ability to practice that in real classrooms. And if we were able to do that in higher education, we'll all be better off.
3: Now, I have um, another question. Um, are there or should there be, and Dean Gonzalez will start with you on this one, um, are there or should there be national standards about what subjects are taught, when, and at what level students should be performing based on their grade level? You know, should we have a more standardization across the United States in terms of what is taught in what grade?
0: Yes, absolutely. And and there are standards now. I mean, one that immediately comes to mind is the National Council for the Education of Mathematics Teachers, uh, which are the standards that drive the mathematics curriculum for K-12 and how teachers are prepared to teach it. There is now conversation uh, at the national level creating national standards across all subjects. Um, one of the concerns too that I have – I have lots of concerns as you can tell with proposed proposal is that they are not linked to either state academic standards or national standards. They assume that uh, if, if you have content knowledge in your field by having a major in that area that you can then go into the classroom and sort of through apprenticeship learn to teach. And they don't teach about the content standards and, and at what level what should be expected by way of, of outcomes – So one of the things that I'm very uh, adamant about is that whatever the preparation of teacher, whatever the route, whether it be a minor, a major, a career changing, transition to teaching, distance education – that all those programs be linked to national standards, I think that 's critical, and it 's one of the things that has distinguished Indiana from many other states is that we 're known for having strong academic k twelve academic standards and, and again, this proposal doesn 't take advantage of that and, and, and it 's one of the reasons why I think educators across the board are so concerned about it
1: in just our last uh, few minutes here uh, we were ta- we 've been talking a lot about how the education of educators is changing. and I'm wondering – there's been of course a lot of press about how the teaching force is going to be getting perhaps dramatically younger in the next five to seven years as baby boomer educators begin to retire and begin to be supplanted by people who are much younger than them. Um, and I'm wondering uh, a couple of different things. First – is there – or what are the consequences, good or bad, of having a bunch of new teachers come in? And the, the sort of silver lining question is, does it stand the reason that as we get more of these teachers into becoming educators themselves, having gone through some of these new educational methods that we've been working to, to perfect over the last 15, 20, 30 years, that there could be this just quantum leap that uh, – President Obama, for instance, is, is looking for because these new people are coming in?
2: I don't think it's going to happen automatically, but I think you're pointing to something that is very hopeful. Uh, I see people coming into my department, for example, now who expect to be excellent in research and teaching. That's their bottom line. And they expect to learn things about teaching in order to be excellent, just as they expect to learn things about their research field. And they, they learn a good deal when they arrive here. They're starting much higher level. Uh, and they expect that to increase on onward and so they are coming to events they're doing things and so i think there is room for a lot, a lot of hope but only if we continue to nurture it both as as departments as institutions and as national and international organizations
4: yeah i'm i'm sometimes find myself wondering about tipping points malcolm gladwell's nice metaphor um, because i think that as you get more faculty i'm speak in on the higher education level but I do think it engages K12 as well more teachers in K12 and more faculty in higher education who are paying more attention to teaching and developing some of the new methods of teaching we've been talking about you are going to have students who have different expectations they are not going to be satisfied with some of the traditional means of teaching that um, they may be exposed to in some classrooms. And when you get the students involved and expecting something more from the faculty, I think that will really make a big difference. I don't know when that will happen. But I will say that one of the kind of many cutting-edge areas in higher education pedagogy, one that does cut across fields – is not only the engagement of doctoral students, graduate students with teaching, but the engagement of undergraduates. We have a burgeoning field of undergraduate research experiences, but there's also a growing edge of undergraduate teaching experiences. Peer instruction is one of the words that goes by. There are many forms of it, of giving students that incredible experience of teaching what they are learning to someone else and in turn being taught by that.
2: Something else that I think lies behind all of this is is this major paradigm shift to beginning to look at teaching as an intellectual activity. And of course, you've done that in education schools for a long time, but we haven't in the rest of the of university. And that goes down, as you say, into student teachers from there to the most advanced researcher at all levels. This is an intellectual activity. And We have universities filled with people who are brilliant at using their minds, but they've not been using those minds to try to improve the process of education. I think we're taking responsibility for that now.
0: Right. And and, and, uh, to your question, I think we are really at a crossroads in this country and we have a window of opportunity here because we're going to have massive retirements of teachers in the future. And what we now have is an opportunity to, to have a new a group of teachers who can be well-prepared. For example, the learners are changing. I mean, they are using technologies in ways that the previous generation would not even have dreamed of. We need to teach those teachers how to integrate technology into the curriculum. They need to know how to teach to more diverse students. Everything is changing, and that's why it's so important that we have future teachers that are well-prepared. And I just want to say one last thing here. This proposal is now on the public comment review and I encourage everyone listening to this program to go to the Department of Education website to learn more about the proposal and then make a judgment on whether or not they like to comment. And you can comment right there on that website. So just go to the Indiana Department of Education, look for the uh, REPA proposal, the proposal to change the way teachers are, are licensed. Read the proposal. Read the summaries and comment on it because I think it's that important for our state and ultimately our country.
1: All right. Well, my thanks to Gerardo Gonzalez, to David Pace, to Mary Huber. For Mike Pashkash and Ariana Prathero, I'm Stan Jostrebski. Thank you for tuning in to Noon Edition.
0: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.
1: Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.